Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. On this episode of Because, we hear part one of the becauses of Ellen Dinwiddie Smith, third hornist in the Minnesota Orchestra and passionate advocate for women in music. Ellen and I met a number of years ago when she came to play as an extra horn with the Quad City Symphony Orchestra. I've really loved getting to know her over the years, and this conversation really paints a wonderful picture as to who she is and what she's passionate about. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm very happy to be here. So where are you from? And tell us a little bit about what that place was like when you were growing up. That's a really interesting question because I'm an army brat. Oh, wow. Yeah. My father taught at West Point mm-hmm. and I was born there and I was the fifth of six children and many of them were born at different times in Oklahoma or Florida, or, you know, various places. Mm-hmm. Um, my youngest brother was born in Frankfurt, Germany. And so we sort of lived all over the place. Mm-hmm. But my two main places that I remember mm-hmm. are Hawaii when I was in elementary school. Wow. Which was awesome. I'm and sure. Texas when I got to fifth grade, I think, sixth grade. Okay. So let's talk about Hawaii a little bit. All right. I mean, we don't have to jump into music right away. Okay. What was, what was a childhood like in um, in uh, Hawaii? I loved it. We lived on a base called Schofield Barracks in Oahu up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And when you're on an army base, at least then, maybe it's different, but we just kind of had free reign. Right. You know, my, my mom would be like, you have to be in distance of the house. And she would do a whistle, like she had a slide whistle. <laughs> and that meant you had to come home for dinner. But... It's like the dinner bell, but a whistle. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, unlike kids of today who are so o- over-programmed, it was mm-hmm. like, just go outside and play, will you? you right, know? exactly. And, uh, you know, we'd play kick the can and, you know, the pick a ball in the, in the you know, down in the little alleys. And mm-hmm. I had a friend who had lots of pets, and I always wanted pets, and we weren't allowed to have them because there were so many kids. My mom didn't want another thing to take care of. Right. Um, so, and didn't trust all of you to take care of it. No, she knew we wouldn't. <laughs> she was very smart that way. And so basically, yeah, I spent a lot of time at my friend's house. And and then in the summer, when we had off school, if my friend had a week, you know, we would get, like, the base people could get a week at a cottage down on the ocean. I'd go with my friend for a week, then she'd come with me for a week, and then mm-hmm. we'd go with some other friend for a week. So we just spent a lot of time body surfing and playing in the, you know, playing in the waves. So how does music come into your life? And was it part of your family before you? Or were you a kind of a black sheep in the sense that music was something you were interested in? Well, as far as I knew, I was pretty much a black sheep because no one in my family knew anything about classical music. And basically, Hawaii is when I first heard classical Uh music. We went down to hear the Honolulu Symphony when I was in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And I came back and I said, I want to play an instrument. 
you know, I knew right away. Like I just, I was very jazzed and my parents were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, I remember a little bit before that wanting to, um, play the piano, but when we moved to Hawaii, our piano got put in storage. Mm-hmm. And of course my brothers and sisters listened to all the big music of the time, you know, the Carpenters and, you know, Black Sabbath and all that stuff. So, you know, we listen a lot, top 40. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically I, I didn't know anything about classical music other than, you know, you what s- I heard. And you that heard one, it and you wanted to be One youth concert, yep. Very and then good. when we moved to Texas, I was very insistent that I wanted to start an instrument. And I even made my mom go back and make sure she'd sign me up for band. Oh, that's awesome. But So I when think, did you move to Texas? We moved, it was 1970. In the summer, I think, Mm -hmm. because one of my brothers had, yeah, one of my brothers had just graduated from high school. Okay. Had a sister who moved into her senior year and another sister moved into her junior year. Wow. And then some angry siblings. Yeah. Can you imagine (laughs) moving from Hawaii to Central Texas? I mean, especially for your like junior or senior year where you're. You're pretty much set with your friend group and all that. (laughs) Yeah, it was a huge change. But it was lucky for me Mm -hmm. because Texas is a great place, of course, for band and music. And um, band is practically a religion there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was uh, was wonderful. I really didn't know what instrument I wanted to play. Really? Unlike some kids, they have a definite, you know. I'm sure I said drums or something. My my parents were like, no way. No way. Yeah. They were just like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And so I was like, I don't know. What am I going to play? Right. (laughs) So you know how the band director does kind of lead you to different things. And um, he did an ear training test, and I could match pitches really well. And I'm left-handed. Mm-hmm. So he said, oh, I think you'd be great for this beautiful instrument. And he showed me one of the brand new horns from the district. And I was like, oh, yes, I want to play that. And a week later when I got my horn, it was this all beat up thing. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't matter. I fell in love with it anyway. Right. Um, at that time, I shared a room with my two sisters. Mm. They were not in love with the horn. And they made me practice in the garage. All right. So I started out in Texas in the garage, which was not all that pleasant, but Mm -hmm. it didn't deter me. I I practiced in the garage that year. Mm -hmm. And then the next year, I moved up to get to practice in the room that had the piano, which was kind of our, we call it our formal living room. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No one has those anymore. (laughs) Um, You run into them now. Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. Yeah, So basically, um, I practiced out there, and the piece that I worked on that year my sister who was a senior in high school could still sing you to this day wow. she could sing that piece for you just, sometimes i pull it out for her as a joke and <laughs> just play it to uh, refresh the memory a little yeah bit. <laughs> yeah but there's kind of a sad story with that piece because oh. it's just you know a little piece out of the box of my book or one of those little books yeah 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 um and uh i worked on it really hard i did i just thought you know they said, we're going to all district band. Everyone's going to work on it hard. Right. And so one day the band director went down the line and had everyone play. Of course, I was last chair because it was middle school and it was my second year playing. Mm-hmm. And it got down to me and I was like the only one who could play it. And they were all just like, whoa, whoa. Amazing. And I just had no idea that I was going to be like that. So I, I felt really good about that, you know. Right. Well, then I went to district band tryout and I just got really nervous i Mm. mean we're talking like i was probably shaking like a leaf nervous Mm -hmm. i didn't play anything well it was terrible i bombed (laughs) and i was like crying in the courtyard and my uh, middle middle school band director who just passed away and i just told this story to his daughter recently he just came up to me and put his arms around me and said you know what it's not the competition that matters right 
And he, and he said, there's going to be plenty of competitions. It's what you did working up to it that matters. Wow. And so out of my failure, he made me feel like a success, mm-hmm. which I think is a big gift for any teacher. For sure. Because I certainly felt like a failure that day. <laughs> right. And I was. But you know what I mean? It's like it made me understand that, okay, it's actually the process more right. than the outcome. And so it gave me the courage to keep going many times in the future when I felt like I'd hit a wall. Right, for sure. And I mean, it's one of those things that on this show, when you talk to to people who are in the business, it's like that resilience and the idea that maybe it doesn't work out, but the process that you went through to get where you're at is going to set you up for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Right. And I'm sure that we will get to some of that in in your story. So who... um, when did you start private lessons, and, and who was this this my, person? <laughs> my very first private lesson teacher was another band director in town, mm-hmm. and he's still he's still alive. His, his name is Mr. Moffitt, mm-hmm. and um, his daughter actually was ended up being in band with me later. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a very dynamic person, and I think there had been a culture of really good horn players because he was a, you know, he was starting people well. Right. Giving a good foundation. Yeah, really good foundation. He understood about how to play the horn and stuff, so I was really nervous, you know, and went into, like, my first or second lesson, and um, I heard the person before me, like, playing their scales, and Mm -hmm. I didn't know my scales yet, and I was like, oh, my God. So I go in there, and he's like, (laughs) play this scale, and I'm like, you know, kind of fumbling through it, and he, he just looks at me and he goes, well, I guess next week those will be better. Oh, <laughs> You know? It just makes me think of the yeah. uh, my first Caballero lesson. Oh. And you can look at my bio to see how late this was. Okay. But he was like, um, yeah, play all your major scales. And I thought I was hot. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I got this. Yeah, here I go. <laughs> <laughs> he got bored with me crapping on them, so he started to take apart a computer printer that was in the office where oh we had a lesson because he had like a <laughs> screwdriver on his on his thing and he just had this best like I think he figured out very early on that I just wanted him to like me so he's like pretty much the same thing he's like well I'd uh I'd hope for better yeah and I was like oh yeah. good lord yeah. <laughs> so it's, next to me, week <laughs> honestly it's the it's the best psychological way to get someone to practice rather right. than saying you gotta practice those right don't you yell just, at them just, yeah you just you know. go like hmm you could do better and because you know people like us we know we could right so yeah, we it's, do it's not like we don't know <laughs> yeah we know the next week we're like okay I got right. I got them now there they are <laughs> here you and go now we can move on to something else exactly <laughs> it's so funny yes well, sorry. <laughs> the scale moment <laughs> right exactly so well once you got through scales there what mm-hmm. um what kind of memories did you have in those lessons themselves well what i remember is that i i just was so green because i didn't have any musical mentors around me mm-hmm. and so i suppose my next few memories about music were um there were some kids just ahead of me in school and one of them in particular and she's now like like the dean at Texas State University. She's mm. like a huge educator. Right. Her name is Dr. Mary Ellen Cavett. And um, she was very good at analyzing things. And right. even though she was a horn player and just two years older than me, I felt like she was a huge mentor in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she knew more than I did about how to look for a teacher and what, what did I need, you know? Right. So um, when she ended up going to the University of Texas at Austin... 
um, I was in high school, and she said, you know, you really should come to Austin and take some lessons, but you don't want to study with Wayne Barrington yet. Why don't you study with Stuart Hutto, who was mm-hmm. a horn player in the Austin Symphony at the mm-hmm. time. He was this amazing guy. He was a hippie. He was very cool. I, I think I've encountered that last name Have at you? least. I, yeah. I don't know, but yeah. uh, anyway, it's like a, yeah. he some was, horn memory in there. He, yeah, <laughs> he was a really, really fun dude. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, so I had kind of... I had help along the path from someone who was more knowledgeable and just sort of led me to to the next places. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think really without someone like that, it would have been hard for me to do a lot of the things I did. Right. So probably if imitation is the best form of flattery, I would have to say I probably tried to imitate her as much as I could. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and luckily for me, she was such a good teacher and had such a gracious spirit that it was like not, it wasn't threatening. It was just like, oh yeah, come do this. Let's do this. Okay, right. now let's do this. And I'd be like, okay, I'm yeah. going to do this now. You know, It's like kind of like a collegial, like... Uh, environment. Yeah. Yep. And actually, I, I remember writing a, a recommendation or a tenure letter or something for her, and I said she was such a natural teacher that she even taught me before she was a teacher. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, she's, like, so natural at it. And it was really true. It was yeah. like, her parents were educators, and um, I just think she had a better understanding of what it was going to be to be an orchestral player someday, and I really didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, which was probably good in hindsight. Right. Yeah, yeah. But you know, she helped lead me, and well, that was a that was a big blessing. Looking back, that's amazing. Yeah. So let's uh, let's step outside of music for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was like talking to your husband about his basketball years. Yeah. Did you have other interests outside of of um, music at this time in your life? Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of said that you you didn't know what it would be like to be uh, a prof- or orchestral horn player, so you might have had other ideas as to how your life might have, what path. Yeah, I mean, I love science. I've mm-hmm. always been a very sciencey person, and, like, I, I won first place in the science fair, and I was in student government. I was a president, I think, in ninth grade. And then, let's see, what other things did I do? I was in sports up until the time when you had to choose between sports and music, and then, right. and then I stopped doing that. Um, what sport was your, or what sports were your sports? I did the cross-country team, okay. and mm-hmm. I usually ran the 440 or the 880. Wow. You know, which in Texas, sometimes when it's hot, can can be kind of one of those sports. Grueling. Yeah. <laughs> Where you want to die when you're done. Right. Um, but I, I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just like the whole, like, atmosphere of the track meets and stuff like that. That, right. that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, then once I started really getting into band, there wasn't a whole lot of other I didn't do like high school sports or right. that kind of thing. I really mm-hmm. kind of got involved in like music or whatever classwork I was doing. And right. So let's let's get to high school. What right. was that environment like for you? And where in Texas are we actually? So we're in Central Texas. Okay. Killeen. Okay. And it was the only high school when I was about to go, and then right as I got there, it split into two schools. They had okay. literally like twelve hundred students the year before I got there, so it was a huge school mm-hmm. split into two. My middle school is the one that split. Okay. So that was kind of unfortunate because half my friends went to the other high school. Right. But. Um, it was a great experience, and my band directors, just like when I was younger, really saved me. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the band directors, um, John Brewer, was the kind of guy who was just hilarious and and just made things fun, right? You know, mm-hmm. and could fix anything, and also taught me like how to you know start 
messing around with instruments and stuff. So right. I wouldn't be afraid to use a torch and stuff because of him. Right, exactly. <laughs> but one of the things I clearly remember was that I don't think I had like a huge I didn't I don't think I like believed in myself in a huge way. Right. And one time he left out like a National Honor Society letter that he'd written for my induction, like, you know, mm-hmm. and I remember reading it and just kind of going, oh, he's talking about me. That's me. You know? Yeah. 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 I was uh-huh. like, someone's talking about me like that? You know? Well, what I, well. And so I think having people like that in your life who help you see, you know, oh, I could be a, I could be a really, you know, this and that, you right. know, a good person and do these things. Mm-hmm. Sort of, it lifts you up a little bit. Right. And I think I was maybe more a typical female in that I was really hard on myself. Right. Like, you know, kind of trying to be too perfectionist mm-hmm. at, at everything. And so every time I made any kind of little mistake, whether I was wearing pants that weren't just right to like how I acted or, you know, everything, I was one of those teenagers who was totally self-conscious. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I probably was a l- little more um, worried about things than I am now, obviously. Right. But, you know, when you're in high school, that stuff is what you worry about. Right. And it's this is the time where you learn to either counteract that or, I guess, succumb to it, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And thank yeah. goodness, I think I, I was able to grow out of that somewhat. Right. I mean, being well, a younger child of six, I learned a lot from watching my siblings grow. Right. But you still have your own stuff to go through. For sure. Yeah, yeah I, I learned how to stay out of trouble because my brother was the one that got caught all yes! the time. Yes! <laughs> yes! Oh! You're so smart. Yes, it's like, just observe, Yeah. and you will know how to proceed. <laughs> I like to say, I I like to put it this way, I was in under the radar. There you go. Yes, right. All, <laughs> everybody had already done all the things yeah, by the time That's right. I was like, around. yeah, I'm not going to do that yeah. in that way. Right. But, hmm. So yeah. did you do, because... Um, uh, at least now, it seems that marching band is huge in Texas. Did you march? Yes. Yeah. But we did not march core style. We were some of the last of the military style cool. marching. And I did some solos with the marching band, which is kind of ridiculous when I think about it now, because mm-hmm. it was, of course, playing a regular horn, not a right. You know, not a marching horn, which they do now. So. Right. Um, but I loved it. I loved the whole mm-hmm. culture of marching band. Like, right. you know, we did silly stuff, went on trips and mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff I just never wanted to end. Right. Yeah. For me, it was like every Friday night, there's a bus trip yeah. with your friends uh-huh. and like, or, um, it was always like, we would go to the game and then we'll do something else afterwards. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so did yeah, you ever watch really the game? Uh, you know, I am kind of like a sporty person, oh. so a little bit, but okay. at the same time, um, it was very easy to get distracted. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's embarrassing, but like people are like, you're from Texas and you don't know anything about football. I like, said, I went to the games every Friday, but yeah. I never watched them. Like, and you don't know anything about marching. Now. Exactly. I was like so into playing with the friends in the stand that, yeah, right. I had no idea. Well, they kept us like in separate stands from everybody else. So that mm-hmm. was kind of sad that we didn't get to uh, mingle across the aisle in right. that sense. But no, yeah, it's always like, I don't know how I would have done high school without those things as like social structures. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even just that like, yeah, you're playing music, which has turned out to be important in both of our lives. But right. at the same time, it's like, you just know you're going to get to see all of your people. Right. And when you're in marching band, it's like for a lot of time. Yeah, it's <laughs> a long week. time. Yeah. yeah. So. And those people really, I think that's how I learned to interact mostly, mm-hmm. which was great. So 
this is the time, you know, high school is when people start to have to make start to have to make decisions about, you know, where they're going to go to college. Did you know that a career in music at this point was something that you wanted? You're going to laugh because my sister was in radio. Okay. She actually worked for a public radio station. And like the one I know, right now. just like now. <laughs> and she did an interview with me. I think we still have it somewhere. And she asked me, I think when I was in eighth grade, and I was like, yes, I'm going to be a professional musician. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what it meant, but that's what I kept saying. Right. So I think I said it enough that I thought it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I think as I approached the time of going off, I said to myself, well, if that doesn't work out, I really like science. I could do something in medicine. Mm-hmm. Like I sort of told myself, like, I, I don't know. So let me just put this down. But I was really lucky. Um, I pretty much had to put myself through college. So okay. I got a full scholarship to the University of Texas at Austin. Mm-hmm. And I kind of said to my mom when I left, like, okay, I'm going to try this music thing. But if it doesn't work out, then I'm going to just switch over to medicine. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, medicine <laughs> will be my fallback. <laughs> well, you know, I was not necessarily thinking I'm going to be a doctor. I just thought there's a lot of things you can right. do. No doubt. You know. For sure. So, so uh, UT Austin was your choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was the school like when you were there? They had just built a brand new music building okay. across from the LBJ Library. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful campus. Um, the school, uh, Wayne Barrington, who had played third in Chicago Symphony, was teaching there. Mm-hmm. And Wayne is like, or was just like the consummate. Uh, musician, but also like intensity. He had that oh, kind okay. of like, in, like still he's, I mean, even though he had, you know, been there teaching for a while, like, hello, Wayne Barrington, you know, he just looked at you and his eyes could burn into it. And you're just like, like ah. oh, this is serious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? So when you spend time with him, you got the feeling that like, yeah, I got to get my stuff together. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point I, I felt like, he was exactly what I needed. Right. Because I, I was still, in my mind, catching up on a lot of basic things that I just didn't do super well. Mm-hmm. And, um, but also learning, like kind of stretching and growing some. And right. during the time I was there, I, I was lucky. I won two competitions. Um, and uh, one of them was like the Sigma Alpha Iota competition. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was like... Um, shared a competition type thing. Right, for the school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was surprised, but I was like, okay, well, here, you know, that, that worked out pretty well. Cool. But um, What piece did you play for concerto competition? Oh, uh, we played the concert stick. It was a group oh, okay. of four of us. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but the thing that really happened that changed everything was uh, at the end of my freshman year, L'Orchestre de Paris came and mm-hmm. played. There was a brand new auditorium. They came and played in the auditorium. And Myron Bloom was principal. Oh, and he wow. played principal on um, Brahms' Third Symphony. And there's some nice horn parts in there. And I said, <laughs> I want to do that yeah. with him. I want him to be my teacher. Wow. And that was how I got on the next part of my path, mm-hmm. really. Um, in the summer, since I'd had um, scholarships for school, I went to Aspen. Okay. I started with Mike Hatfield, and I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I felt like it kind of helped me jump my playing. Right. Um, 
I guess just having that kind of experience where you hear people from all over the place, even right. though you're at college, was like ear, it trained mm-hmm. my ears better. Mm-hmm. I started to know like what I needed to do. Right. Like I sat next to people who were not much older than me, but could do stuff I couldn't do. Right. And also I, I really needed to learn the repertoire. Mm-hmm. Like there was just so much repertoire to learn. Right. And it's like when you find environments like what you're describing here with people around you that are playing well, Yeah, it's this like kind of strange, like osmosis. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, you are learning things, like you're hearing things for the first time. But at the same time, like there's that eerie thing where you're like, you get out of rehearsal and you're like, just being around this sound, somehow I'm better at horn because of it. I know. It's really... Well, I often like to say you're only as good as your ears are. Mm-hmm. And you, the only way to learn is by listening. And you're right. not going to... You're not going to listen the same way in high school that you do in college. You're not going to sure. listen the same way in college as 10 years down the road. Right. And so you only can be as good as what you're hearing. And in that way, music is so much more... It's a mentorship model than many other careers, right. I think. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we have to mentor and foster each other right. more than other professions. Right. And there's, um, you know, even in an age where, like, the internet has everything, at, like, possible, mm-hmm. I, I still find so much of the horn world is, like, passing down stories and passing down teaching techniques. Yeah. It's not, it hasn't become, like... Well, here's how you teach like Clevenger. Here's how you teach like Bloom. Here's right. how you teach like Caballero. It's yeah. like all of us tell stories. Yeah. All of us give those things to our students. And it just yeah. it's a really cool tradition in that sense. And I'm, you know, as a person who loves the internet, I am glad though that there's still some stories that we all just know and tell each other. Yeah, that's true. It's really true. Yeah. I know. So um are there any, is there anybody at Aspen that you're still, that you went to Aspen with that you're still connected with today? Um, well, John Erickson mm-hmm. was in Aspen when I was there. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool, cool. I yeah. studied with him for a summer at yeah. Uh, Brevard. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, I remember asking him because he was at Eastman at the time. And I said, like, what does your teacher give you for warm ups? And he, like, just gave me a bunch of warm ups. Mm. Wayne Barrington never really talked about warming up. And I right. just, I seem to need to warm up a lot. Mm-hmm. And I would ask other students, like, what do you do? Right. You know, and I just asked people, you know, ad nauseum. They're probably sure they got annoyed with me, but I was like, what do you do? And so I just would try out different things. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I've maybe more than other people, I felt like I really had to space out my practice. Right. So I would get up early and practice mm-hmm. and then take a break and then practice some more in the afternoon and then take a break and then practice late at night and then take right. a break. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember meeting a tuba player years after I left um, New York. Um, and he said, yeah, I remember you. You were the one who was always practicing. But it wasn't like I practiced more. It was just I practiced more spaced, Right, I think. exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I'm like that as well. I just can't, like, I get to a certain point where I'm just like, I'm not learning anything. Yeah. I need to get out of here. <laughs> right. Like, here's my time. And also, I'm far too social for just being in the practice. Room. Right. <laughs> so it's like, I've got to talk to people. That's right. And that's important. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's really good to know yourself like that. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that you saw Myron and right. you're like, I want to do that right. with him. Right. And uh, so what's that story? 
So then, of course, I started listening to recordings, and there were some graduate students who told me some stories about him, which did scare me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was it the you'll play Koprosh one for an entire year. Yeah, or, yep. basically just like, <laughs> but I. I couldn't help it. I just was like, I have to study with him. And mm-hmm. so so then I applied to Juilliard, and I got in, and I had applied to study with him. But mm-hmm. he actually wasn't at the audition. Okay. And so um, that summer, I was put into – I got the letter that I was put into Rainier Dean Tennis's class at Juilliard. Mm. And I was confused by that because – He wasn't there, and I didn't even know if he had had a chance to consider me as a student because he wasn't there to hear me. Right. So um, I actually went to talk to John Terminaro about it, and I said, you know, here's the thing. The reason why I applied to go to Julia was to study with him, and now I'm a little upset because here it is a month before I go, and I discover I'm not in his studio. And he said, here's what you do, kid. (laughs) (laughs) He said, first of all, you don't want the antennas to be pissed off that you don't like him or something. So before you ever have a lesson with him, you go to the office and you ask them if they'll ask Myron Bloom to take you as a student. And if he will, then you tell Rainier Dean Tennis that you are now a Myron Bloom student, you know, so that you don't cause any hardship between you. It's right, not like right. you've rejected one or the other. He knows Dean Tennis knew that I had put Bloom down. Mm-hmm. But Bloom wasn't at the audition, so he just grabbed me over to his studio. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's <Right>. what happened. <laughs> and it's like an amazing thing that within the span of one sentence, you drop like three mammoth horn names. <laughs> there you go. I know. And here I am thinking, like, I was just a kid. Who, who was I to go up and talk to John Schumer like that? Who, by the way, I loved learning, like listening to him and just mm-hmm. learning from hearing him when I was a student at Aspen. But yeah, I, I was too, I didn't think he would be a good fit for me as a teacher. Right. At that time. And mm-hmm. I'm really glad that I had Hatfield as a teacher, but I still felt like I could talk to him. Mm-hmm. And without those few words of him saying, this is what you should do, I would never have had the courage to do that. Yeah. And I'm so glad I did. So you followed his followed his advice and it worked out as yeah, he had. it did. Exactly <laughs> like he said. I yeah. was like... So did you transfer from UT to Juilliard? Okay. I did. After how many years in Texas? I was at at the University of Texas for two years. Okay. Then I transferred to Juilliard, and actually I was only at Juilliard for one year. Okay. So what happened was during the time that I was studying with um, Myron, like, it is really weird how people find the right teachers for them. Right. Because um, during the time, he was still playing in L'Orchestre de Paris, so he'd be gone for like a month. Mm-hmm. And then he would come back, and we'd have this flurry of lessons in, like, four, wow. four weeks. We'd mm-hmm. have, like, eight lessons or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And my brain would just be bursting. Um, but, like, within the first six months, like, we knew we worked well together. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it was because um, of where – if I had come to him as a freshman, I think things would have been way different. But I had worked right. through some of my problems. Because mm-hmm. um, Bloom is the kind of teacher who, if you have a problem – he won't let you move forward. He's going to tell you what the problem is. Right. If you don't fix the problem, then you're not going to move forward. You're going to keep talking about that problem. Right. And that's why people stay on Coprash 1 because mm-hmm. they have a problem and they're not fixing it. So, right. And I'm not – different people are different. But right. there's other psychological reasons why I think I was okay studying with him. Mm-hmm. And one is that my dad was a military officer. Right. And it was yes, sir, no, sir, no excuse, sir. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was used to like someone telling me like what to do. 
And it didn't mean that I wasn't thinking other stuff, you right. know, like, oh, I could do this too, you know. But step one is to do what they told you. Exactly. Yep. And mm-hmm. then the other thing was that um, when there was something I really didn't understand, I really made a point of telling him and asking him, like, more about it. Right. Which I think sometimes he would get stuck on ex- – he- like nowadays, we talk about teaching techniques and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. In those days, Being you just said, flexible for yeah, your students. right, do this thing this way and teach them six different ways how to do the right. same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. his way was, do it this way, now, right. you know? So if you if you manage to be able to communicate to him your needs, which wasn't easy right. because it took some courage, um, then he, he did get it that he mm-hmm. needed to think of another way. Right. And his ear was unrelenting. He would not accept an attack that wasn't perfect. Hmm. He would not accept a rhythm that was out of sync with itself. He he was, you know, it was uncompromising, which is good, Mm -hmm. and it can be bad. Right. You know, so because, you know, you're a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, The other thing is, I think where I came from emotionally is that I never felt like I was that great. And I think some students start out thinking, I'm the hot student. I'm the hot thing in the right. corner. And there's nothing like taking a lesson with Myron Bloom to knock you down a rung, right? right. Yep. So I didn't have to worry about how far I was down on the rung. I right. was already feeling like I got stuff to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also just like how your your mental state is. Right. I, I think you talked to my husband. Like he was always felt like he was just the greatest, you know? Right. And that's a difference between males and females. Mm-hmm. And I was always like, oh, yeah, I'm not very good, so mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So I think that was helpful right. with him. No doubt. Because yeah. I there was a guy before me, and I literally heard him yell at the guy for an hour, and I'd be, like, sitting out in the hall going, am I really going in there? Yeah, no doubt. And I'd get in there, and it was totally different with me. Hmm. So there you have it. I, and that's why I know that he's not the right teacher for everyone. Right. And I've had... Um... David Renfro on the show, who's principal of Arkansas. Yes. And he tells like the sweetest and fondest stories of Myron. Mm-hmm. And even on that episode, I was like, you know, these are not the stories that you hear mm-hmm. from others. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, I think, exactly what you're talking about. It's yeah. like, if you are able to show who you are and interact with him in a way that's like, you know, honest. Right. Then I guess you get a different side of him. And another uh, colleague of mine at Carnegie Mellon studied with him, uh-huh. and he was like, you know, I'd go over for dinner at his house, yeah. and like, so anyway, it's like some of these people who you just hear the stories of the bad stories. They and are I, all actually I've, sweet people. <laughs> I know, and I've met some of those people, and yeah. I, and I realized that this was really not the right teacher for them. Like mm-hmm. this person basically felt terrorized, you know. Right. But that's. Again, like I said, a lot of it depends on where you're coming from emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like where I was was an okay place. Yep. Um, you know, I never I never ran out of there crying. Mm-hmm. I always ran out of there thinking, oh, my gosh, there's something I can do better. Right. And I would go out and write down everything he said so that mm-hmm. I would remember how to do it better. Right. And um, it took me a long time to digest some things, but quickly with others. And mm-hmm. I remember one time specifically I misunderstood something. And when I came back, I was doing it a different way than he he said. And he was like, what are you doing? And I said, I misunderstood. I've been practicing for a month the way I thought you wanted me to do it. But I'm going to change it by the time you come back next time. That's right. <laughs> because the kinds of things he said weren't like, just, you know, get that note. It, mm-hmm. he, he was not a note, you know, it wasn't about that. It was about really learning to play well. So if you, it was a big 
concept you were learning. Right. So if you didn't get the concept, you would you were lost. Yeah, I think David said he he mentioned like those people are note getters. Yeah. And we need to be more than a note getter. <laughs> yeah, he really was all about the music and mm-hmm. about the um, beauty of sound about making different colors. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he was opposed to different colors, bright or non-bright or whatever. He just right. wanted to make all the colors. Mm-hmm. There were definitely things he did better than other things. Right. Um, and in the time he lived in, I think he did play in a certain way with as much intensity as you possibly could, given mm-hmm. what he was playing on, Yeah. especially. Oh, that's amazing. So, So what other... Uh, New York memories do you have what I mean I always like to hear um, stories about like concerts Mm. do you remember any specific ones like I got to be in Pittsburgh when they recorded all the Mahler symphonies Uh, (laughs) or when they recorded all the Brahms symphonies and started the Mahler ones so it's like I could go to the hall three times a weekend and hear hear everything amazing (laughs) I know I know and that's how New York was for me I actually worked in the concert (laughs) office I was a student um, employee like in the concert office so when people would call in and they had tickets they'd be like um I have two tickets on the floor to Peter Grimes at the Met tonight and I can't use them I'd be like oh I'll take your donation you know and then I'd be like put them in my pocket yeah exactly (laughs) you're donating to a a young Juilliard student (laughs) exactly and it literally happened I was so lucky stuff like that happened to me because I didn't have the money just to go out to all these concerts so you know I remember going and I heard Mahler four four times that year so many different ways I heard the Cleveland Orchestra do it um, I heard I heard it in Carnegie where there was a I think it was um, I think it was Bernstein and a male young male singer instead of a female. Oh, cool! And I think it was a Dallas Symphony where the singer came out on the female singer came out on stage singing the last movement. <laughs> oh, interesting! I think you know I just heard so much. I think hearing orchestras live taught me a lot because sometimes you listen to recordings and you think an orchestra sounds this way, right? And then you hear a recording, you're like. Well, the horns sound really loud in the recordings, but they're actually not that loud when right. you hear them in line. You know For what I sure. mean? Yeah. So, and I always found that um, it, it, this sounds mean, but it's not. It's like I like to hear humans play, mm-hmm. and oftentimes recordings give you a almost non-human impression of some of these yeah. orchestras. So for me, it's like. I know I like to hear people going for it a little extra on yeah. one night over the next and right. stuff like that. Right. So. Well, and the way it's the way the recording stuff has worked now, it's so hard mm-hmm. to do that because, like for instance, we just finished the all the Mahler symphonies, and it's a grueling process. And you know, you might go over this incredibly loud high section, you know, ten times. Right. And. I just don't, it doesn't feel the same as a performance because (laughs) by the 10th time, (laughs) you're like, let's move on. Yeah. You're like, my face is, you know, it feels like a track, you know, that where someone's worn their Mm -hmm. cleats on it for a while. So one of my favorite recording stories that I heard was, um, this is early Caballero when they did, um, all three Respighi's on one record and (laughs) they had a session where they were going to like pretty much knock them all out in a day, <laughs> which is nuts to me. Yeah. And uh, he hadn't quite learned yet that, so like Vosberg's going to him and be like, hey, can we do the offstage solo first? And like <laughs> Cindy Dale Maida's getting in all hers and right. all this. And then 
the very last thing that they did was that big from carnivals or whatever yes and he was like uh he told me he was like i have one time through this I don't have two. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like the, what you hear on that record is right. the first there time because there was not going to be That's a second right. one. There it is. <laughs> so yep. no, that uh, those recording stories are always funny. Yes, <laughs> and it happens that way. I can tell right. you. So um, you spent one year in New York. Mm-hmm. What's the story after that? So then I went to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and. Um, I had known Mark before that. That's where we met in New York, Mm -hmm. my husband. Um, And he was a cellist, but he was going to Curtis for conducting. And so we decided to share an apartment because there were no dorms at that Mm -hmm. time. Um, Platonically, we had other other, um, boyfriends and girlfriends Mm -hmm. for the whole time we were students there. Um, And I spent two years at Curtis. The third year I was there, but I really had a job in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. So it was sort of like a, I want to stay. I'm not sure if I can graduate, if I'm going to have a job year. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. And, um, but during that time, I felt like um, it was really a magical time for me because when I got to Curtis, there was Shelly Showers, who's now in Philly. Um, there was uh, Sue Carroll, who's since retired from Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um Let's see. Uh, of course, Rich, Rich King came in while I was there. I helped pick him out of the out of the people <laughs> with Myron. That was a pretty funny story. Yeah, Rich. Can actually, you tell it? Yeah. Well, okay. So, so Rich, believe it or not, Rich was not the first choice. Mm-hmm. There was someone else who actually has since become a conductor who was very, also very talented um, player. His name is Ross. I can't remember his first name now. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, but Rich was also very talented. But he had this weird embouchure where he would like go from one side of his face to the other when he mm. went up high and low. So I just said to I said to Myron like I, I I think he'd be great. But just let me just talk to him when he gets there. So Rich Rich came. He was mm. in he was like in high school. Right. He was in like eleventh grade or something. So he comes. He sits down. I said, okay, let's just talk about your embouchure. And he goes, okay. And I said, so play something for me. He plays it. I said, okay, so put it right here. And just leave it there. Don't do anything else. He goes, okay. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Oh, and wow. now he says, I taught I taught him how to have a good amateur. I'm like, no, no. You just you just need somebody to tell you, leave it like, on one Stop play. doing this. Yeah. yeah. Just don't move it around. You'll be fine. Yeah. Well. He was so talented. So, but it was sort of like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, everyone there, like, had a specific kind of talent. I learned so much from listening to Shelly play her senior year and the next year was a great year for me to you know kind of show what I could do and I felt like I got a lot of experience Mm -hmm. in the summers I was doing festivals like Colorado Philharmonic and then became National Repertory Orchestra with Carl Carl Topolo I felt like that was almost like having a real job Mm -hmm. because you go through so much repertoire um Chautauqua I did one summer so I did various festivals to me that those were what helped me get a lot more repertoire under my belt yeah no doubt which was good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my last year, which was kind of a, I'm not going to be the orchestra star at Curtis anymore, but I'm going to take auditions and still play in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, I lucked out and got a job in Charleston, South Carolina, like in October. Wow. But it's so weird because like the week before that, I was in the finals for Cleveland. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you can go right. from like that kind of job <laughs> to like. Right. So, mm-hmm. but it's funny because I only found out recently the person I replaced was Todd Bowermaster, <laughs> right. which I totally forgot. Till yeah. I knew it at the time, but somehow he. At that point, he probably had gone to Hawaii. Hawaii. Yep, yeah. And he and I talked Louis. about it. Yeah. Recently, <laughs> that, that was how that happened. But anyway, so it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of commuted that year. Um, and then the next year I was in Charleston and I just practiced and took auditions Mm -hmm. and then I was literally on my way back to Charleston and my car was full of everything I owned Mm -hmm. I was visiting my parents in central Texas and I stopped to take the audition of Fort Worth Mm -hmm. and by the end of the day I'd won the job (laughs) I was like they said do you want to start tomorrow I'm like I don't see why not (laughs) yeah all my stuff's in the car yeah my stuff's in the car so let's just do it (laughs) wow (laughs) so kind of funny so um what were some memories of these first jobs. I, I don't know, like my memories of my first job all involve your husband. So mm. just in the sense of like, you know, it, it, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about this idea of like, I felt, and maybe you felt similar, but it's like, I had a bunch of experience, mm-hmm. but like when it's your job, mm-hmm. like and I play horn well, right now I have this job right. <laughs> and it's like a whole nother like learning curve where you're just like, Oh, I have to like do this now. Yeah. It, it's here. Yeah. We're not preparing for it. It's, it's here. It's now. And now yeah. it's the time. Well, <laughs> yeah. a good example is when I started that Fort Worth job, the next day we were doing a Benjamin Lee's symphony. And it was a chamber orchestra at the time. They had a chamber orchestra and a full orchestra. Mm-hmm. So I played second in the chamber orchestra and third in the full orchestra. Okay. So I was playing this this rehearsal. It was the first time I sat down with this orchestra. I'm not going to tell you the conductor was, but I, I could not tell what was happening. Mm-hmm. When I looked up, I was like, lost and so after about 10 minutes of playing i turned to the first horn players fabulous guy lauren larson i said um can you can you tell me like what do i do here what's the key he goes oh you're looking up (laughs) (laughs) and he just started laughing and boy did i learn to just this is a this is a thing Mm -hmm. put my listening ears on like put the blinders on and just tune into what everyone else was doing. And that was a really good lesson for me. That was a real life lesson of someone who had been like trained very well to watch the connector, do what the connector's doing. Mm -hmm. That sometimes you just you just have to dig in and do what everyone else is doing. And And that will save you. Listen and stay on the train. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Really helped me so much that 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 experience. So those years were really important for me as far as real life. you know, also, like, what you learn in school, you're so idealistic about certain things. It has to be this way or that way. And you get into orchestra and someone plays it entirely differently. Well, you can't just be stubborn right. and play it the way you learned in well, school. Well, you can, but you don't get tenure that way. Well, but not like that. It's just it's just not a good musical yeah. experience for anyone. If right. Everyone's playing stuff, like, stubbornly differently, you know. So, right. so I just found myself learning to be more flexible and do things I didn't do. With mm-hmm. Bloom, because Bloom was always like, you can't play anything on the B-flat horn below the staff or, you know, even in the staff for that matter. Right. I just learned right away, like, you have to just do what works. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, real life happened. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, I was working a lot with Greg Hustis. I'd go over and play for him. Mm-hmm. And he was really great at just kind of like, yeah, that's what you should be doing. You know, because right. I was like, wait, well, what about the? No, mm-hmm. you should be doing that. That works. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <it. laughs> and I had played for him on and off ever since I had been a student at UT Austin. Mm-hmm. So he knew my playing. Wow. He had offered me a full scholarship to um, SMU. Yeah, to SMU. 
um, at one point, and I I went to Curtis instead. Yeah, you know because mm-hmm. because that's what you know what you did at that time. Mm-hmm. But you know, I was always always very close to him, and he he was always so helpful. Mm-hmm. I'm always thankful to have that whole different perspective. You know, right. you've got to get your ideas from everywhere. And he was so much more real world than Myron was, you mm-hmm. know, even though I, like I said, I got exactly what I needed there too. Um, I just, it just helped having that other ear. Yeah. And if I wouldn't have kept taking auditions, I probably wouldn't have had to gone over and play for him, but I just was determined to keep, to keep going, to keep going. Because is produced by Mark Zyla and Jaron Michelle in the studios of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Thank you for listening to this episode. Because I read Because by Mo Willems, illustrated by Amber Wren, I wanted to learn the becauses of people I admire. Do me a favor and thank someone in your own Because story and join us next time on Because. Because.